I'm Tracy Sable. Tonight on EWTN News Nightly, dire situation. The UN staff in Gaza say they feel abandoned by the international community. They still cannot understand why after, you know, 17,000 people having been killed, uh, after the almost entire population having been uh, displaced, that we still cannot agree on uh, ceasefire. Protecting the unborn. Pro-lifers fight for the right to life in three states this week. How they plan to stand against the Supreme Court. A double-edged sword. The FDA approves a remedy for a life-threatening disorder. We weigh the ethical concerns. And 800 years in the making. The Vatican celebrates a beloved tradition and a monumental anniversary this Christmas. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us on the feast day of Pope St. Damascus I. Our top story tonight, the war between Israel and Hamas. Intense fighting is happening in central and northern Gaza, where an Israeli defense minister says Hamas is at a breaking point. Meanwhile, ground fighting has begun in southern Gaza, and there are new tensions on the Israel-Lebanese border. This as the humanitarian situation continues to worsen. The U.N. General Assembly will resume its emergency session on Tuesday after the United States vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution on Friday calling for a humanitarian ceasefire. Joining us now from Jerusalem with the latest is Philip Crowther, international affiliate correspondent for the Associated Press. Philip, great to be with you. So what is the status right now of Israel's offensive up and down Gaza Strip, and are they any closer to eliminating Hamas? Well, there are Israeli soldiers on the ground in uh, both of Gaza's largest cities. That is, first of all, Khan Yunus in the south. That is uh, Gaza's second largest city. And that is where the Israeli military opened its new ground offensive at the beginning of the month. Uh, but they are also still fighting to get control of Gaza City. Uh, and all around them are still civilians, despite there having been evacuation orders from the Israeli military. There are thousands of civilians in the north as well. They are still in their homes. They are in UN shelters or in hospitals where they hope they are safer. But essentially, the civilians of the Gaza Strip are being pushed further and further south to places that were supposed to be safe for them. But the conclusion from most residents and most human, uh, humanitarian aid organizations also on the ground is that nowhere is safe in the Gaza Strip right now. There is still heavy Hamas resistance in all parts of Gaza, in the north as well. That is where ground troops entered all of six weeks ago already. Yeah, and there are also reports of escalated tensions on Israel's border with Lebanon. What are you learning about this? Well, there was, there's always been this fear that things could escalate, that another front in this war could open up. It's, in fact, the Biden administration that is making this clear every single day that they really don't want this conflict to escalate into other parts of Israel or indeed other countries that border Israel. What we saw over the weekend were Israeli airstrikes against Hezbollah positions in southern Lebanon. This was in response to explosive drones and missiles being used by Hezbollah on Israeli positions. Uh, there have been attacks by, from Hezbollah fighters every day since the start of Israel's military operation in the Gaza Strip. Uh, for now, things have not escalated too far, but there are daily confrontations.
Philip, talk to us about the humanitarian situation. I know there have been calls for more aid, uh, but a key crossing between Gaza and Israel, it wasn't open on Monday. Yeah, that's the Kerem Shalom crossing. It looks like it might be opening up in the next few days. There's been a lot of negotiations around this by the United States and the United Nations together with Israel. Israel so far has not agreed to any openings from Israel into the Gaza Strip. There is only one border crossing that is open that humanitarian aid can come through. That is Rafah. That is between Egypt and the Gaza Strip. And it is very limited. Humanitarian aid is very much needed. It is a dire humanitarian situation according to the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres and all humanitarian aid organizations on the ground. There is a lack of food and any food that is available is soaring in price. There's a lack of water as well and other basic goods and this humanitarian situation is not going to get better anytime soon. Philip, really quickly, 30 seconds left, uh, but China and the U.S. have both recently been outspoken about the way Israel is handling the war. Do you think international pressure may convince Israel to change course? Well, it's uh, very unlikely. There has been quite a lot of pressure over the last few days and weeks, and it might uh, be very visible when it comes to a, a Tuesday vote uh, during this emergency session at the UN General Assembly. I think what you'll see is a vote for an immediate ceasefire with the likes of Israel and the United States most likely voting against it, thereby showing again how they are pretty isolated diplomatically. So that is not a way that a ceasefire is going to be put in place. Okay, Philip, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Several dozen pro-Palestine protesters calling for an end to the war in Gaza were arrested inside the Hart building of the U.S. Capitol complex today. Pro-Palestinian protesters laid on the ground while another climbed a huge sculpture to display a banner. Capitol Police had to forcibly drag and pick up protesters refusing to sit up and exit the building. In all, more than 40 people were arrested. Only four more legislative days left before the holiday break, and Congress faces the same critical issues that they've had for months. Foreign aid and defense policy top the list. So what is the latest on a potential aid package for Israel and Ukraine and the southern border? Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales explains. Good evening. Bottom line, Republicans and Democrats are still very far apart on border policy changes. Key Republicans are telling me immigration policy changes must take place first for America's own border with any foreign aid package. So I care about Ukraine homeland security. I care about Israel's homeland security, but it would be immoral for me to put those two ahead of what I think is a clear and present threat to our homeland security. But Democrats charge that conditioning border policy changes to aid for Israel and Ukraine shows Republicans aren't serious about coming up with a solution. Uh, and if Republicans were sincere and genuine about truly negotiating a more secure border, they would have voted uh, to begin debate and discussion on that bill. They had a prime opportunity to bring forward their own plans or their amendments to the president's package. But they voted no, they're not ready to genuinely talk. President Biden has said he's open to border reforms. Senator Lindsey Graham says President Biden has to get involved and use the power of his office. If you don't use your executive tools or work with us for a statutory solution, none of us who are supportive of Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan can vote 
uh, on a supplemental because you're making us pick countries abroad over our own homeland security. Meanwhile, President Biden continues to face the opening of an impeachment inquiry by House Republicans. I think we're very close to having the, the votes for an inquiry. You got to realize I mean, an inquiry is not an impeachment and everyone should be, you know, everyone should support something looking for open records and, and getting the facts out. House Speaker Mike Johnson says the House is likely to vote on that impeachment inquiry this week. Democrats continue to say Republicans have no evidence of wrongdoing. What this is is a, essentially just a big political sham that Republicans and James Comer are trying to impose on, on President Biden because they want to damage him and they want to get Donald Trump reelected. That's what this is all about. Is it political? Senators fear Israel and Ukraine won't get any aid unless Congress acts by the end of the year. Some lawmakers tell me that they want to stay in session for as long as it takes to pass a foreign aid bill. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN News Nightly. Well, the Biden administration warns if Ukraine doesn't get the funding it needs, then Russian President Vladimir Putin will be able to move forward with impunity and won't stop in Ukraine. Tomorrow, President Joe Biden will once again meet face-to-face -face with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. The White House says President Biden invited Ukraine's President Zelensky here tomorrow, quote, to underscore the United States' unshakable commitment to supporting the people of Ukraine as they defend themselves against Russia's brutal invasion. President Joe Biden took no questions when he headed off to Pennsylvania today. But on Sunday, the press secretary released a statement on the upcoming visit of President Volodymyr Zelensky, saying, as Russia ramps up its missile and drone strikes against Ukraine, the leaders will discuss Ukraine's urgent needs and the vital importance of the United States' continued support at this critical moment. Just today, Ukraine says Russia fired missiles at Kyiv. All of them shot down, the thwarted attack damaging or destroying homes and buildings, even leaving a crater, one person injured by shrapnel. President Zelensky spoke today at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C., saying in no uncertain terms, Vladimir Putin must lose. Russia is set on more than just Ukraine's land, resources, or our people. It won't be satisfied with just a part of Ukraine or even all of it, Ukraine is just a stepping stone for Russia. Meanwhile, in Philadelphia, President Biden announcing a $22 million grant for firefighters. And starting today for the first time in nearly 15 years, this neighborhood once again has a ladder company on call 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, ready to keep them safe. And in the 2024 race, President Biden faces an uphill battle in his re-election bid. A Wall Street Journal poll has former President Trump beating Biden by four points. Trump also has a clear edge against his Republican rivals in Iowa. A new NBC News poll shows Trump's lead in the state growing to 51 percent. And CNN is also out with a new poll showing Trump beating Biden in Michigan and Georgia, two key states. Now back to the Biden-Zelensky meeting set for tomorrow. The National Security Council says President Zelensky will update the U.S. on the current battlefront conditions in Ukraine. Also, the two leaders will discuss the current contentious negotiations on Capitol Hill over more funding for Ukraine. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. Our special counsel Jack Smith is asking the Supreme Court to decide quickly on whether former President Donald Trump 
can be prosecuted on charges related to the 2020 election. A federal judge had ruled that the case could go forward, but Trump suggested he would ask a federal appeals court to reverse that decision. Smith skipped over the appeals court and asked the nation's highest court to take up the matter. The justices are not scheduled to meet again until January 2024. On this week's Supreme Courts in three different states will be hearing arguments weighing pro-life rights. The cases in Arizona, Wyoming, and New Mexico will determine abortion access. The host of Pro-Life Weekly, Prudence Robertson, is here now to explain. Prudence, great to see you. Uh, Arizona's state Supreme Court is set to review a historic abortion case. What more can you tell us about this? Yes, well, actually, there are two abortion uh, pro-life laws on the books in Arizona, and the Supreme Court will be considering which fragments of both of those laws they might allow to stand. Uh, currently, judges have determined in Arizona that these two pro-life laws apply to two different sets of people in the state. Um, the 15-week ban that limits abortions in Arizona applies to doctors, they say, and a near-total ban on abortion applies to non-doctors in the state. And this is pretty confusing, but what it essentially translates to is that doctors can still perform abortions in Arizona up to 15 weeks when we know unborn babies feel pain in the womb. But on top of that, because of that near total ban applying to non-doctors, it's harder for women earlier in pregnancy to obtain dangerous abortion pills by mail if they don't want to have to go into an abortion clinic or see a doctor to have an abortion. So the Supreme Court will be uh, deciding which fragments of those laws they might uphold, as I said before. And two pro-life Arizonans, a doctor and an attorney, are standing in defense of the pro-life laws there. Prudence, I want to talk about Wyoming now. A suit there involves two Republican lawmakers and a pro-life organization. Uh, tell us what's happening there. Yes, well, those two pro-life state lawmakers are actually um, asking the court to provide them standing in the case to, to defend these pro-life laws. Uh, both of them are common-sense laws. One of them bans uh, all abortions, except in the cases of rape and incest, if the, if the life of the mother is at risk or if the child might be born with a disability. And the second law would, again, restrict dangerous chemical abortions from being sent through the mail. So in order for those laws to be given a chance to stand in Wyoming, they're currently being blocked by lawsuits put forward by pro-abortion activists. In order for those laws to be given a chance, someone has to be given the opportunity to defend them. That's what those pro-life state legislators are fighting for at the court this week. Prince, before we wrap up, uh, the state of New Mexico allows abortions, but some local ordinances have instituted their own de facto laws. What can you tell us about that? Yes, that's right. So there is a federal law known as the Comstock Act that bans all uh, mail order items that might facilitate an abortion. And pro-life locals in New Mexico have issued local level ordinances to to restrict chemical abortion pills from being sent through the mail, despite the fact that New Mexico does allow abortions through all nine months. So the state Supreme Court is debating whether or not those local ordinances stand up against that state law um, by citing this, this federal Comstock Act. And I should also note that the pro-abortion attorney general in New Mexico, as an aside, is trying to work around and find a loophole to include a so-called right to abortion in New Mexico's state constitution. Uh, so we're continuing to track that as the court debates uh, these local ordinances. All right, Prince, thank you so much for weighing in. We appreciate it. Thanks, Tracy. 
Turning now to the Lone Star State, where a pregnant woman, Kate Cox, has left the state to obtain an abortion following a legal battle in the Texas Supreme Court. This came after the court temporarily blocked the 31-year-old Cox from getting an emergency abortion after a lower court ruled last week that she could. Cox is 20 weeks pregnant. She was told that her baby is at high risk for trisomy 18. That is a chromosomal condition associated with a number of abnormalities. Her lawsuit claims that complications in her pregnancy are putting her life and future fertility at risk. We have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including... You can't really justify spending that amount of money uh, on just one individual um, if you're going to try to save, you know, many, many people out there. It is a life-changing treatment, but just how many people will be able to afford it? More on that. And the president of the University of Pennsylvania resigns. Why Harvard's president could be next. Late last week, the Food and Drug Administration approved the first ever gene editing therapy to alleviate a debilitating disorder. The treatment will help those 12 and older suffering from sickle cell disease, what the FDA calls a rare, debilitating, and life-threatening blood disorder with significant unmet need. In the trial run, nearly 97% of those treated saw their pain resolved for at least 18 months. But despite the positive results, there are two main concerns, the expensive price tag and the high likelihood for infertility following the procedure. Joining us now to talk more about this is Dr. Joseph Meany, president of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Dr. Meany, great to have you back on. Uh, first off, I want to get your thoughts on this groundbreaking treatment. Yes, yeah, so it's very interesting to see that the FDA has approved for the first time a gene therapy for sickle cell disease, which is uh, a very common genetic disease um, and affects primarily African-Americans. But it's the first time that this has been approved, so it's really uh, groundbreaking. And from a Catholic ethical perspective, um, talk to us about that and what the church teaches about gene editing, editing therapies. Yeah, so the church has said uh, since Donum Vitae, really, that gene therapies can be acceptable as long as they're strictly therapeutic. That is to say, the gene therapy is used to treat a genetic disease. Uh, there are other people out there who want to do gene therapies to do human enhancement, or they want to do gene therapies that will affect all the future generations, so germline gene editing uh, affecting human embryos. But this is not the case, right? This, this current therapy is actually for individuals 12 years old and older and will affect a very serious disease and try to cure them. So from the Catholic perspective, this is you know a very licit therapy and hopefully will be effective. Yeah, and um, we mentioned earlier that this treatment has a potentially high risk of infertility. Talk to us more about that. I mean, obviously a big concern, especially from a Catholic ethical perspective. Yes. So one of the things that has to be evaluated with any actual treatment is uh, the proportion of benefits and, and possible side effects. So really what needs to happen with these gene therapies is a lot of clinical trials, which have happened, and more clinical trials to understand what all the potential uh, side effects are in the future and, and the benefits. And if there is a balance between them, then people could choose it. But of course, this therapy is still experimental in the sense that uh, very few people have gone through it. And they're still going to be studying this for many years in the future. So I would say that um, every therapy needs to be evaluated from that ethical perspective, right? Are, is there a proportion between the, the benefits and the burdens and also between the cost because this is a very expensive therapy? 
Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about that before I let you go. I mean, that really is a big concern. Even with health insurance, it comes with a hefty price tag. Right. It, it seems that some of these uh, therapies will cost between 2 and $3 million per person, which is, of course, astronomical. But I think you have to keep in mind, like, the human genome editing project, right, cost $2.7 billion to do, to map the human genome. And yet today, you can map your, your human genome for only a few hundred dollars. So the price does come down with technological advancements. But I think currently that does kind of put it out of the range of most people, even from an ethical perspective. You can't really justify spending that amount of money uh, on just one individual um, if you're going to try to save, you know, many, many people out there. Dr. Meany, thank you so much for your time and insights. Always appreciate it. God bless. Thank you. Well, the president of Harvard's job hangs in the balance as a meeting of the Harvard Corporation today could decide her fate. President Claudine Gay received support from some faculty on Sunday saying that her job security should not be decided based on some poorly worded remarks during her congressional testimony on anti-Semitism. This follows the resignation of the University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill after mounting blowback from donors and lawmakers alike for not strongly condemning anti-Semitism at the same congressional hearing. Following McGill's resignation, U.S. Representative Elise Stefanik said, quote, one down, two to go. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, credible witnesses. Pope Francis tells us how, like John the Baptist, we can become a voice in the desert. Plus, paying tribute why this year's Vatican nativity scene is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Silence and prayer, two ways to make space for Jesus in our lives. Voce di uno che grida nel At the Sunday address, Pope Francis highlighted the importance of listening to God by embracing the example of John the Baptist, described as the voice of one crying in the desert. The Holy Father also commemorated the anniversary of the signing of the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights on December 10, 1948, saying that the commitment to human rights is never finished. And finally tonight, the Vatican unveiled its annual Christmas tree and nativity scene, which pays special tribute to the origins of the beloved tradition on its 800th anniversary. EWTN Vatican Bureau Chief Andreas Tonhauser has more. The nostalgia for silence and prayer, this is what a nativity scene should awaken in all of us as we live our often so hectic lives, said Pope Francis before the inauguration of the life-size depiction of Christ's birth in St. Peter's Square here in Rome. On Saturday, December the 9th, Cardinal Fernando Vergas Alsaga presided over the ceremony. He's the president of the Governorate of Vatican City State, which is responsible for both the nativity scene as well as the Christmas tree in front of St. Peter's Basilica. This tradition is fairly new, as it was only started by Pope St. John Paul II in 1982. Much older is this tradition in the little town of Greccio, an hour and a half outside of Rome. There, St. Francis of Assisi initiated the first nativity scene with real people. This year we celebrate its 800th anniversary. And that is why the scene on St. Peter's Square also comes from Greccio. The nativity scene shows beautiful terracotta figures crafted by Neapolitan sculptor Antonio Catone. This is a big difference to St. Francis's original, who had real animals and people impersonating Jesus Christ's birth in a cave just outside Greccio. 
In St. Peter's Square, we can now find a replica of this cave. We also see frescoes that are taken from the shrine in Greccio, which had been built over the original grotto. These images show St. Francis adoring the child, as well as Mary feeding baby Jesus. The still empty manger is at the center of the large nativity scene. Only on Christmas Eve, the Christ child will be placed into the pillow of straw it contains. There are Mary and Joseph, the cow and the donkey, as one would expect from a real nativity scene. But there's also St. Francis and some of his brothers shown right next to the manger. It's a real tribute to the founder of the Franciscans and inventor of the nativity scene. The large Christmas tree right next to the scene comes from the northwest of Italy. It's an 80-foot tall fir. The town of Macra donated the tree and adorned it with Edelweiss flowers native to the Alps from where the tree was taken. After Christmas, its wood will be used to make toys for children in need, something very important to Pope Francis. And there's another fact that was important for the Holy Father to point out. As St. Francis was inspired by his visit to Bethlehem in the Holy Land to organize the nativity scene in Greccio, we all should be moved to pray for peace in the Holy Land when seeing the grotto in St. Peter's Square. Peace on Earth. In Rome, Andreas Stonehauser, EWTN, News Nightly. And we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless. Thank you.